If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with the historian, author and broadcaster Lawrence Rees, who's made several documentary series for BBC television, with a particular focus on the Second World War. Lawrence's latest book is Hitler and Stalin, which examines the actions of the Soviet and Nazi leaders during the course of the Second World War. He spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. So, Lawrence, many books have been written about both Hitler and Stalin, but what do you see as the benefits of the comparative approach you take in your book? Well, really, to answer that, really, I have to, to say how I came up with the idea and wanted to do it. And and this came from um, making a series of documentaries over a number of years about the Nazi state and then also about Stalin and the, the Soviet Union. And what I began to find, having had the, the opportunity to meet people who uh, either worked for or were close to Hitler and worked for or were close to Stalin and who suffered in the regimes and who were perpetrators in the regimes... Um, what I began to see were a number of really fascinating similarities, but also a number of really, really interesting differences. And I thought that my perspective coming at it as someone who'd made all these films on this and met all these people, crucially met these people, would be a different perspective to that of an academic historian who hadn't had that opportunity. And so it came from that, really. It wasn't that I suddenly thought, oh, this would be a good idea from a for a book just out of a, kind of like as a uh, uh, almost as a sort of um, intellectual exercise. It came out of the experience of meeting people who'd personally gone through it and, ex- and experienced it themselves. And then with, with, with wanting to then talk about that, but place it in, uh, for want of a better word, a scholarly context, a context of, of, of trying to use the best of the academic work and there's some brilliant academic work that's gone on in this area over the last 30 years. So it was trying to get that combination between the two and hope for, and, and, and point out uh, how they both interacted with each other, because that was another crucial aspect. Obviously, they're both a, a, a aware of each other and interacting with each other during the war period, which is why I focused it on uh, on that. And then finally, it was because I I wanted to examine this overarching theme that I perceived, which was that both of them actually, despite their many number of similarities, many differences, both of them had one overarching similarity, which was this belief that they could create a utopia on earth. And that that was this extraordinary concept uh, that linked them actually fundamentally together. And was that utopianism, was that common to other dictators or is that what sets these two apart from, say, 
Mao, Ho Chi Minh, Mussolini. Yeah, I'm not even convinced it's necessarily either or. I mean, it's clearly some kind of of of, of scale, if you like. But if you look at, for example, uh, Saddam Hussein, um, Saddam Hussein um, is a thug. He's a, a, a brutal uh, kind of mafia-like dictator. If you look at someone like Paul Pot, then actually they also have this a utopian vision that they're seeking to to build uh, here. And and I think that there is a difference between a dictator who uh, is simply kind of in it for the uh, personal aggrandizement, is in it to to benefit his family, is 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 in it almost as a kind of quasi mafia boss, and some and a tyrant who is who has come to power, actually convinced they have uncovered the secret of existence, and it's their mission to try and create the world that's in their imagination almost. Here on Earth, and 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 once you've got a tyrant who's doing that, um, uh, it, it seems to me you have the the potential for levels of human disaster that are almost unfathomable. And I wonder if we could go into a little bit about what those visions were. What what was Hitler's utopian vision, and how did that contrast with Stalin's? The the central belief of Adolf Hitler was that the world is understood through racism that 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 the world is a a, a brutal uh, desperate place ruled by laws of nature primal laws of nature and the, the most primal of all of them is that victory goes to the strongest so uh, uh and the strongest you understand by in racial terms, starting off of originally from the a, a belief in um, it's, it's black people, uh, uh, um, you know, sort of Asian people, white people, and so on, and that the white person is 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 the, is the most superior, and within that there are uh, uh, ways of understanding different groups. So you've got a Slavic group, you've got um, obviously a Jewish um, uh, uh, group, uh, and you've got a uh, white Aryan group, the Aryans who he thought were the most superior. And that's why in this context, he saw the Jews as so uniquely dangerous, not because of any religious beliefs at all. He believed that that there was such a thing as Jewish blood that made them racially uniquely dangerous. Um, And so so then, which is why they sought to um, persecute Jews on the basis of race, not religion. But where it went wrong is, of course, they, they, they for them, in terms of their, even in their own little, uh, I mean, this is all, it, it bears repeating, this is all nonsensical and it's, it's despicable, it's outrageous, <laughs> this belief. But nonetheless, it was held, it was honestly held by these people. I mean, honestly, in the sense that they genuinely believed it. Um, but what happens with the Jews is that that that, that they they, don't have, they they can't devise a test, of course, for Jewish blood and working out who's a who's a Jew and who isn't. So they end up uh, um, with a test which is religious, which is the number of grandparents you had that were practicing the Jewish faith. But if you look back at say the, uh, um, uh, the persecution of the Jews in, in in previous history, very often it's. It, it, there's a way of a, uh, of a Jew escaping terrible, horrible persecution by converting to become a Christian. Uh, absolutely inconceivable within the Nazi state to do that because it's not about 
what they're believing at all. And, and and that's one of the things stemming from this racial vision, stemming from this vision of, of uh, the world being a, a cruel, violent place where uh, only the stronger deserve to live. Uh, it, it's that that eliminates any sense of individual compassion, any, any sense of individual care. It's immaterial, absolutely immaterial, that you could have a, a, a Jewish person who is, who is keen to serve the state immaterial doesn't matter it's the blood and that was what he genuinely ludicrously but he genuinely uh believed and so then what would you see as stalin's vision stalin stalin by contrast he 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 would have absolutely thought this was 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 the, the nonsensical rubbish to which it is um he comes at it from a uh, from a Marxist perspective. He comes at it from the belief that that what he is trying to do is to eliminate all of the evils of society that he has seen happen, which are fundamentally that you have a group of people who uh, are uh, controlling the levers of power, controlling the means of production, um, owning vast estates, and have done nothing to deserve it. They've simply been born in the right place, and now they're in a position to essentially persecute the people who are working uh, working for them and deny them uh, um, all sorts of rights. And that the, the way through that is following the dictates of Marx. The way through that is to create this perfect society, uh, initially a socialist society moving on to a communist society, but a perfect society in which um, uh, uh, people are living as far as possible uh, equal lives. People are living as far as possible lives where they understand that, 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 that what's important is that they contribute to the state and that the state will then organize through, through various systems, will organize uh, equality of opportunity, equality of education, uh, uh, elimination of all private ownership, because by definition, that's unfair and unjust. Um, and create a, a create a society that 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 gets rid of all those previous abuses, and that initially that will be socialism as a way through to ultimately communism, and the ultimate end game of communism, as 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 seen by Marx. I say this. This is a simplification because there's a there's a huge element of complexity within Marx that scholars still argue about. Rather like um, I always think. Uh, 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 Christians would, particularly in previous times, would argue about very detailed uh, uh, elements of the of, of, of Christian belief, and there would be various heretics on one side or the other within the Christian, within the broad Christian belief structures. Um, but so, but but broadly, they were. Uh, uh, Stalin is looking, uh, uh, at least he claims to be looking, to create a world in which the state will wither away. And then what will happen is everyone will live together in this extraordinary dreamlike uh, utopia where we don't really need much government of any kind and everybody's equal, everybody's happy, and it's this wonderful kind of paradise on earth. Now, I, I realise the consequences were horrendous in both cases, but certainly from the way you're describing it, is it fair to say that Stalin's vision was a little more, I don't know if you'd say idealistic, more positive, less less imbued with hatred than that of Hitler's? That's a really fascinating question because that was initially, uh, I remember 30 years ago when I kind of started on all this work, I remember uh, uh, um, this one of the, the scholars I was talking to who, who had a kind of, uh, 
a kind of relatively common view for then, which was, well, Hitler, it, it, and he summarized it as if, you know, he was saying, he said, well, if I was talking to a child, he said, I would say this, I would say that Hitler was somebody who had a very, very, who did very, very bad things and had a very bad goal in sight. And Stalin was a person who did very, very bad things, but had a rather noble goal in sight. Um, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, where I've come to is to believe that both of them are bad people with bad goals. And the reason that that the um, uh, uh, Stalin's goal is bad is because I do not, for, for two reasons. First, I don't necessarily believe that he believed that this was ever a possibility, that this, this kind of extraordinary, wonderful, utopian uh, paradise state is going to be wonderful. Uh, and it's going to be even conceivable. I mean, how is that ever actually going to happen? And I came across a speech that he made just before the war, it, it, which I think is of huge significance. And I haven't seen much em as, em as much emphasis on that speech as I think it should have, in which he himself admits that it, this is, a, this is a, 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 a goal that will be incredibly hard to achieve. And he says, in the, essentially in this speech, and I paraphrase, he says, well, we're all, we all know we're aiming for the goal of um, this extraordinary utopian state where we don't really need government and so on. But what we've got to understand is that that's only possible if the whole world goes communist. Because how can we do that and, and get rid of our, um, as he called them, security organs, by which he means the secret police and all the apparatus around, around that, as well as the armies and so on? How can we divest ourselves of that if other people have it because then they're just that we're, we're putting ourselves massively at risk so we can't we can't do that so these these institutions these oppressive institutions it didn't use the word oppressive but that's what they are these are, will have to stay so he's admitting that that actually um in order to get to this 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 ultimate goal the whole world will have to go communist well does anyone seriously think how on earth how how is that going to be achieved or conceived or it so it's kind of like an impossible goal that's my first point my second point is even if the impossible goal was achieved if you if you can argue that it's conceivable supposing i live in this wonderful new um uh, utopian state where there's no real government, everyone's really happy. But I actually passionately believe that we ought to have a form of of liberal democracy, and we ought to have uh, uh, um, some form of 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 local government or whatever. I believe things that aren't compatible with the idea of the extraordinary utopian state. As soon as I believe that, I have to be repressed because I'm a danger to the broader state. So actually. Even within this utopian world, there has to be oppression. There has to be um, the putting down, or the, the uh, uh, either through prison or any form, but the putting down of people who don't subscribe to that vision. So therefore, it, it, it's it's going to be oppressive, which is why I end the the introduction to the book by saying um, oppression is not a part of the system in either system. Nazism or Stalinism. Oppression is the system. Now, now as you mentioned earlier, you this book is drawn a lot from your interviews with people who've met both of the, the two dictators. And just, I wonder, on a personality level, how did the two differ as humans, as people to encounter? I think they were they were incredibly different. And that's one of, as I say, one of the things that uh, um, interests me about this is to what it would be like to 
you know, to having met people who walked into a room and had meetings with Hitler and walked into a room and had meetings with Stalin. And, and it's very, very different. It's different at a, a number of levels. The first thing to say is that uh, Hitler uh, was enormously fond of the sound of his own voice. So he would just, he would talk. It would be a problem in a meeting with Hitler if you um, uh, said certain trigger words. You know, if you said, well, um, well, of course, you know, there's a problem with this or that. And he went, yes. And then he would be off. You know, he'd go. And you had a real problem because he would just, as they, in modern day parlance, go off on one. But I don't believe that anybody uh, who was a member of the Nazi state and took a meeting with Hitler was ever, um, or I'm not I'm not aware of it, uh, there may have been, but I'm not aware of it, ever took that meeting uh, as a normal functionary within the state and was frightened. Because um, Hitler actually uh, uh, had very, very set areas that he was focused and targeted on. And um, it, it, you really, uh, as a general rule, you had to be plotting against him in order for there to be a real um, problem. Uh, the famous Night of the Long Knives, um, uh, where Ernst Röhm, his uh, chief of staff, was caught and was caught and killed. He was allegedly plotting. Um, it, it's never been absolutely established uh, the, 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 the extent to which um, uh, Rome was plotting that the stormtroopers take over the uh, uh, move through and have functions of the army and and so on. That's th- th- this argument around that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Hitler was 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 pushed into a position, or at least felt he had was in a position where he had to take action. There were a number of people killed in that. Um, a former chancellor's wife, who was totally had no no role in any of this, and she was killed as these assassins came in and uh, uh, um, and so there were those numbers of peop- people who suffered it utterly uh, uh, unjustly but it's not the same as the as as the kind of thing that's going on with Stalin so as a broad general rule you were safer if you're a normal functioner in this state in a meeting with Hitler than you are with Stalin uh, Stalin you you were always at risk. If you, even if you are a loyal functionary of the state, if he feels if he feels that you are if he's got any suspicions about you, you are in you are in possibly fatal trouble. And the other thing about Stalin in that context is that he doesn't go off on one. He doesn't um, uh, talk and talk and talk and talk. On the contrary, he watches. He's an extremely aggressive listener and he's watching all the time. And that must have been a pretty terrifying experience for uh, some of these people to be in those meetings. Um, uh, uh, The problem with Stalin was that you had to be very careful. You had to be extremely careful. If he felt you were lying, if he felt you were in any way um, not being, not, uh, not delivering, if he felt you were in any way responsible for, uh, in your past, you'd met people who he had turned against and so on. It was a very, very, very different uh, uh, scenario. So uh, at, a, at a personal level, taking a meeting with Hitler versus taking a meeting with the Stalin, they would be very, very different uh, experiences for you. What's intriguing is that if 
for 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 West for for very many Western politicians who come across, uh, and there's not that many actually who uh, are necessarily coming across both of them. But uh, I think that for those who are, if you take Anthony Eden for instance, he talks about meeting with Stalin, and he talks about Stalin in terms of. Um, uh, this is an extremely uh, impressive individual who is able to uh, debate, who's able to be focused in a meeting on narrow things, who's able to take the conversation one way or the other. I mean, he's a, he, he, the number of uh, of people like um, uh, Field Marshal Allenbrook, like Alexander Cadogan of the Foreign Office, who actually seem almost impressed by Stalin um, because... I think they recognize in him this kind of very careful bureaucrat who, or at least not a bureaucrat, but someone who is steeped in bureaucracy, who's come through that um, uh, that system, understands committee meetings. Hitler just hated committee meetings. Stalin comes through a system where he's actually um, orchestrating a whole administrative structure that he understands. And so he's almost more accessible to some of these Western um, uh, statesmen and um, uh, bureaucratic functionaries than Hitler is. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So there is a kind of brotherhood between them that you see, which is that they both understand. Um, they, they, they both believe in torture. They both believe in terror. They both believe that murder is an acceptable way forward. They both believe in a whole host of things that actually uh, the Western democracies that Stalin has to subsequently deal with aren't subscribing to. So did people's impression of these leaders depend partly on their ideological conviction? So would a committed communist or a committed Nazi be more impressed in meeting their leaders than an outsider? Absolutely. That's true of both. But I think it's primarily true of Hitler. I think what you see with Hitler is that um, if you are, and I think it, it relates to the different types of leadership. So Hitler is, as Max Weber would have described him in his classic work of the early 20th century, Hitler is the absolutely archetypal charismatic leader. Now that we use charisma today as the term of approbation. We think, oh, that's an admirable quality to have. Actually, in terms of concepts of political leadership, charisma is... Um, a neutral term. It's value neutral. You can be a charismatic leader and do terribly appalling things. And but Hitler is a charismatic leader in that he he his his authority comes from himself and and through him through through his followers. It doesn't come from the um, uh, systems of the state as Stalin's authority certainly initially does. And so it, with charismatic leaders. I think it depends very, very much the charisma on on the belief system, on the beliefs of the people who are encountering them, or seeing them, or viewing them, or reading about them. So, uh, uh, charisma isn't a quality I don't believe that exists of itself. You're not charismatic walking around alone on a desert island. Charisma is a description of a quality that exists between two people, or between one person and an audience, and it comes and it's created in that gap. So it comes from the uh, mutuality of beliefs from the people who believe this is an amazingly impressive person and that person. So you find that the experience of meeting Hitler very much depended on what you yourself brought in 
brought into it in a way that I don't believe that the experience of meeting Stalin depended very much necessarily on what you're bringing into it. At least, of course, it does in some regard, but not as much as with Hitler. Now, your book focuses on the events of World War II primarily. How well do you think these two leadership styles were suited to that conflict? That's, again, my goodness, that's a huge... (sighs) That's a huge question. Crikey, I could do, you know, that's the question of of, of someone's PhD, you know. Um, I think what's what's fascinating about it in in terms of their leadership style is that of the two regimes, Nazism is one of the most dynamic uh, systems, I think that there's there's been in 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 recent times. It's extraordinarily. I mean, it's relatively short lived. It's only that the the Reich only lasts twelve years, um, and yet it's got this extraordinary dynamism within it in terms of what is actually going on. If you think about it, Hitler is uh, plays the the central part in three of the most consequential decisions ever taken in history. That is to say, the, the 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 decision to invade Poland that that kickstarts and causes the um, and, and starts the Second World War, the decision to invade the Soviet Union in in June nineteen forty one, which is the biggest and bloodiest and most appalling war uh, uh, in modern times certainly that anyone's ever seen, and thirdly, the um, uh, Hitler presides over the Holocaust, which is arguably, and I subscribe to that belief arguably the most uh, 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 appalling singular crime in in history so one individual is at the center of all those three decisions one individual it's quite extraordinary very hard to point to another individual who has caused such catastrophe in the whole of human history you know it's a, that's another debate in which one is a very turns into a rather nugatory debate i've discovered because you end up sort of trying to calculate well how do we determine horror and so on and Genghis Khan, no doubt, killed many people as he went in, you know, so on. But nonetheless, certainly in modern terms, in modern terms, uh, very hard to point to an individual who has caused such catastrophe in the world as Adolf Hitler. And yet, um, he's not he's he's not holding a great deal. You know, he's, he's not sort of operating a, 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 a normal, as we would call it, state. I mean, during the, uh, the the 30s, a number of people comment on how he doesn't seem to be doing much dictating, as it were. Um, and as my great um, mentor, Sir Ian Kershaw, you know, once said to me, I mean, you've got a dictator who doesn't seem to be spending a great deal of time during this period dictating. So what's what's going on? And the answer is because then the way that the, the reason that it, it can have this dynamism is because what he's doing is very, very clear. He has enormous clarity of vision and he has a number of people who are then competing against each other to come up with ways of fulfilling that vision. So, for example, you see that uh, um, he is the one who is driving in autumn of 1939 and, and spring of 1940 the decision to invade Western Europe. And his, a number of his generals think this is an absolutely uh, ridiculous idea, that they're bound to fail. And yet he pushes and pushes and pushes them. And in the end, he, he starts picking a plan that arguably comes from this guy, uh, um, uh, an officer called uh, Manstein, the plan which eventually pushes through and defeats France and the uh, um, 
uh, other countries of Western Europe that are invaded. So, and this isn't, there isn't as much focus, I don't believe, on the decision-making process that leads to the conquest of Western Europe, um, uh, land-based Western Europe, not obviously Britain, um, that he, the, the, the process through which he, he, he actually, uh, uh, that happens is quite extraordinary. I mean, that is one of the single greatest military triumphs, again, arguably of all time, overshadowed completely by the way it all goes wrong for the Nazis in, in the Soviet Union. But that and the way that that works is a function of how his leadership works and how he is able through his charismatic leadership to operate. So you have that on the one hand, and then you have on the other hand, Stalin, who is is reading documents, reading way more documents than Hitler's ever reading about things. Because Stalin is through in his nature so incredibly suspicious, he's always worried about information that's being secretly pushed around him. So he's reading all the intelligence documents, docu uh, as many as he can, in uh, 1940 through into the first half of 1941. He's trying to understand that himself, and, and he's so desperate to believe that Hitler isn't going to invade, that he starts trying to create around him this alternate universe in which, oh, it's not really going to happen. And then, once they do invade in June 1941, he has, if not a breakdown, and again, there's a lot of debate about exactly how he, he, he goes through those, those first few weeks, if not a breakdown, certainly uh, um, he's not in a good place, as one might put it colloquially. Uh, he makes a series of terrible uh, military decisions culminating in the loss of the Battle of Kiev in the autumn of 1941, where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Soviet soldiers are captured or killed. Um, and he's making terrible decisions. He's making terrible decisions because unlike Hitler, who ultimately is setting a vision and then trusting um, his functionaries, his generals or his other functionaries to carry this through, Stalin is interfering at a very, very, very detailed level in what his generals are doing on the ground and saying, no, you can't repeat, you can't retreat, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's catastrophic. So in that initial period of the war, you have, I think, a, a, a huge difference between the two in terms of their own um, leadership tactics. But then ultimately, considering the outcome of the war, was it Stalin's of pragmatism or adaptability that in the end meant that his regime was able to defeat Hitler's? I think there's a huge, again, big question. <laughs> big question. Um, why, why did the war go as it did in succinctly? Um, I, I think it's, to me, I, I point to uh, mid-October 1941, almost as the moment that the whole of the 20th century turned and our lives really turned. I believe that um, uh, because that's the moment when Stalin decides not to leave Moscow. He decides not to leave Moscow with the Germans seemingly about to encircle Moscow. Uh, and th there, are, there are already calls for um, Stalin to go, to go safe further east. And the number of various ministries in, this, in Moscow have already been moved further east. And Stalin actually goes down to a station in Moscow where his armoured trade is waiting. And I met Stalin's um, personal uh, telegraphist who was already packed up from the Kremlin 
all the equipment and was down there waiting on the train to go. And I think one of the big central counterfactual questions of the 20th century is what happens if Stalin gets on that train? In the end, he decides not to. He decides to tough it out in Moscow, to impose a state of siege, to, to get Zhukov, to try and organize um, uh, Zhukov and a number of other generals, but primarily Zhukov, to, to organize the defense of Moscow. And they hold the, they hold the Germans there. Uh, now, that becomes the turning point, I think. That everything turns on, 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 on that moment. And um, from that moment, he's still, Stalin is still making, he makes in the spring of 1942 a series of catastrophic military decisions. But as you get more towards the end of 42 and his, his, uh, the, the Operation Uranus and the movement against Stalingrad and so on, you begin to see that Stalin actually understands that he has to, particularly, I think, with Zhukov, he actually has to give more latitude to these people, otherwise he's going to lose the war. So he, he, Stalin is perfectly capable of losing the war through his own character and personality if he does not ameliorate it. And the first sign of that change, I think, is his decision is, is decision not to leave Moscow, because in many ways, the pragmatic bureaucratic decision is to, would have been to leave. And he doesn't go because he actually, be, I think, understands that the message that sends, the message that sends of a strong leader essentially fleeing um, would be would be catastrophic. Um, would you say that both leaders were a hindrance ultimately to their war efforts? Well, you, you can't really say that of Stalin because they did win. Right, yes. And so therefore you you, you can't say he was... I mean, he, what people I think have to under, understand is that the the dynamism within the within the, the Third Reich, but also the absolute essential belief that it, you must... The country needs to expand. The country cannot survive with the amount of land essentially it's got. It has to gain extra territory. And that territory can only be gained at the expense of others. Therefore, there has to be a major, major war. So at a purely practical level, they're going to get into a major war in the East. That's going to happen. It also fits with Hitler's mindset, as I was talking about earlier, at a almost quasi-philosophical level. Measure, uh, level, which is he believes that what the world is about is struggle. And he believes that the, that the way you develop, I think, as a personality is through fight. You prove yourself by your fight and your strength. So it's always going to go this way. Um, it's arguable, deeply arguable, whether they could ever have um, uh, succeeded in the war in the East. Uh, even if Stalin leaves Moscow and there's some kind of peace deal put together like Brest-Litovsk uh, in 1918, whereby the Germans have access to large to bits of Ukraine and, 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 and the Baltic states and so on. The, one of the fundamental reasons they're going into the Soviet Union is a search of oil. And the oil is, that, is, is enormous distances away in um uh, Baku and and the whole area around the Caspian Sea. So hard to see how a peace deal is going to allow that, and that's the oil thereafter. So 
it, it's it's what this is the, one of the terrible problems with of course with counterfactual history you get so many what ifs you'd be spirals away but so it's hard to see uh, a scenario in in which that war is going to be um ended in a way that hitler's satisfied without the total destruction um essentially of the soviet union because because he's looking for the oil so that's one kind of reason why it's not going to say it's always doomed, but there's always going to be deep, deep problematical situation there. With Stalin's very, very different because actually he already has all the land he needs. I mean, it's, 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 look at the size of the Soviet Union. I mean, it, his issue is the governance within the Soviet Union and the way in which you retain control of this vast state. Communism, of course, um, uh, talks about global revolution, and um, uh, Trotsky, for instance, was always was was talking about global revolution. But Stalin's attitude to that is distinctly ambivalent. Uh, through you see through a number of things, and I think it's ambivalent because he understands that that his challenge is to transform this giant state, which has all the land, you know, enormous quantities of land, in a way that in the way that Hitler doesn't so therefore he doesn't have to plan on this vast military scheme of conquest now one thing that both dictators shared was the capacity to murder millions of people but are there important differences in how and why they exercise this brutality uh yes can i just leave it at that (laughs) (laughs) no um Yes, absolutely. Of course, there are. Um, the extraordinary thing that happens is, of course, the Holocaust, uh, and and it's it's important to understand that the Holocaust comes out not just of a lengthy prehistory of deep anti-Semitism, of racial-based uh, um, anti-Semitism, of a belief that the Jews are incredibly dangerous. All that sort, all that, all that belief structure which existed certainly in the the, the, the Third Reich before the war. But the actual creation of the death camps, the um, systematic mass extermination of the Jews comes from the invasion of the Soviet Union after that. It was only in the context after that that all of these particular horrors that we associate with the Holocaust um, happen. Now, prior to that, it can be argued, and I, I, I make some of these points in the, the book, it can be argued that the sort of ways in which Hitler is approaching that are in many respects similar to the ways in which Stalin is persecuting large numbers of people. For example, both, uh, I see Poland really as this kind of awful, terrible experiment between both of them in terms of ethnic cleansing and suffering and murder and so on. Poland really is ripped apart, literally ripped apart, because in 1939 it split between uh, the Nazis and the Soviets. Again, this is something that I don't think is fully un- understood uh, in many people today. They don't understand that actually the Red Army invades in September shortly after the Germans have invaded and they split Poland between them. And both of them approach this ethnic cleansing in in, in not dissimilar ways. So, for, exa- for example, one crucial element of it is deportation. Both believe that one way to reorder a, reorder a society is to deport people who you think are unsuitable in various ways. 
So the Nazis are involved in deporting um, uh, Poles from areas they want to Germanize into other areas of Poland that they want to uh, colloquially one people, somebody called uh, the dustbin of the Reich, this area called the general government around Krakow. Stalin, because he has vast spaces and, and there is a history of deportation, actually deports large numbers, enormous numbers of Poles from eastern Poland right the way into the wilds of the Soviet Union where many die. Um, so both of them are approaching this in the very much the same way. Both understand, for example, the power of hunger. They both understand that if you withhold food, you you, you can uh, not just you, you kill and manipulate people. So you you, you see that with um, uh, the treatment of people in the gulags. You see that with uh, the suffering of people in these forced communities that many of many go to in in um, uh, as I say the wilds of the Soviet Union. You see that um, uh, throughout Nazi-occupied states where. Uh, only those thought worthwhile people uh, are allowed to eat. So you see that you see it in a whole number of ways. Uh, the interesting, the fascinating thing, the, the horrible, terrible thing is how the Holocaust, which is different in kind, comes through this, comes through um, uh, 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 the, these early horrors and develops into um, what it finally becomes. Now, I know that the two leaders never met, but do we know how did Hitler and Stalin view each other? I think um, it's pretty clear that Stalin has uh, great respect for Hitler. Um, uh, and I think Stalin, in many, many ways, is frightened of Hitler. Hitler has a more of an ambivalence. Hitler remarks um, uh, to, to Goebbels, uh, his propaganda minister, who kept a diary, as we know, uh, Hitler remarks before the war that um, uh, Stalin must be sick in the brain uh, to kill so many people during the great terror of the late 30s when he's, when he starts murdering large numbers of people as enemies of the people. And Hitler thinks that's, you know, quote, sick in the brain. But then during the war, you see how Hitler begins to have this respect uh, um, uh, for Stalin. And he talks about how wise Stalin was to purge off certain officers in the Red Army to ensure that it was a politically loyal machine. Because Hitler begins to think um, that the army is not as loyal to him as it should be. And the officer corps is not as loyal to him as it should be. And so he begins to envy Stalin for that. So I think that that overall you could say they both have a, a kind of grudging respect for each other and understanding of each other. And you, you see that, that if you compare the deal, the, the, the meeting that Stalin has with Ribbentrop in the summer of 1939, out of which comes the Nazi-Soviet pact, even though you ideologically you can see that these two regimes are at opposite ends, or if not at opposite ends, they're very different ideologically, even though there's that, they understand the nature of oppression and the nature of terror, and they can they can rapidly come to agreements. When Anthony Eden visits Stalin, um, uh, not that much later, at the end of uh, 1941, when Stalin when Anthony Eden visits uh, Stalin, there is an extraordinary moment in that meeting when Stalin tries essentially says, "Well, 
let's have a secret protocol to this deal. We can organize, you know, and, and Eden is sort of rather appalled, I think, by this, that this is sort of, this is not how we conduct conduct ourselves. So that so that actually the problem that Stalin then has dealing with these Western democracies is that they simply, he can't deal with them in the same way that, that um, he was able to deal with the Nazis. So there is a kind of brotherhood between them that you see, which is that they both understand um, that, that they, they both believe in torture, they both believe in terror, they both believe that murder is an acceptable way forward, they both believe in a whole host of things that actually... Uh, the Western democracies that Stalin has to subsequently deal with aren't subscribing to. Now, one question that's often asked, though perhaps not always by serious historians, is which of these two dictators was the worst? I mean, do you think there's any value in trying to make a comparison like that? I, again, it's a really hard question to answer because, the, 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 the well, at one level, it's an easy question to answer because you immediately have to say, what, what, what do you mean by worst? And, and therein, therein is the rub, because I don't think anyone can define what they mean by worst. What they mean, I think colloquially what they mean by worst is how many uh, non-combatant civilians can you say that each is responsible for the death of? Um, but what you can't do is calculate individual suffering, the extent of individual suffering. You can't calculate the uh, um, individual levels of terror. You can't, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, the, the, the worst actually sounds like a, a straightforward question, but actually it's a deeply freighted question within which the meaning of the word worst is not clear. And it's just simply not an accessible word. It's not, each person has got a different, can have a different view of worst, which is why in the book, I don't address, let's say, who's worse. What I address at the end is an attempt to say, who can we say was responsible for the death of more, most non-combatant civilians? And that is a question we can attempt to answer. Uh, it's one we have to attempt to answer with, with great uh, care and sensitivity because um, an individual death, some of these stories and people I've met whose, whose lives were destroyed and families killed and, and, and suffered in the most appalling ways. I've met so many people on both sides who uh, have the most terrible, terrible, heart-wrenching uh, experiences that, that to then leap, lump them all together as a number somehow... It, it, you know, it's problematic. You've got to be very careful with that because which but but in the book, what I think is that there's there is sufficient material from individuals who suffered to hopefully uh, alleviate that. But if we're talking in terms of general numbers, then um, what the new research has begun to show is that um, uh, you can certainly say that Hitler is responsible for the death of more people. It's a very, very complex um, uh, subject to address for a whole variety of reasons that I go into in the book. But you, as a broad brush, you could say that Hitler is responsible for the death of at least 20 million of these people, and Stalin perhaps up to uh, or around 13 million. Uh, th those are very, very, you know, 
they're very, very broad brush um, numbers, but it gives you a sense of the scale. And you have to say within that, you can't then say, I wouldn't extrapolate from that, that Hitler is necessarily, you say, oh, oh, so he's sort of proportionally worse, whatever, because the suffering that Stalin is creating is so unspeakable. I mean, it's absolutely uh, uh, appalling that you can't negate, you you don't then go, oh, I don't feel so bad about that as I do about Hitler or whatever. It's actually a function, those numbers are in part a function of what I was mentioning earlier, which is the sense in which Hitler felt the absolute necessity to create this vast empire and within that vast empire to remove people who he thought weren't of use uh, uh, to the Nazi state. So it's a function in part of the of the expansion allied to the exterminatory nature of how he's of how he's approaching it. That was Lawrence Fries. Hitler and Stalin, The Tyrant and the Second World War, is out now, published by Viking. And Lawrence also wrote a piece about the two dictators in the December issue of BBC History magazine. That's no longer on sale in the UK, but is available as a back issue and may still be on sale in some other countries. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with another lecture from our History Weekend events. <laughs>